I'm Alan Hallowell, and this is Season 4, Episode 2 of Indotechno. Now, headlines such as those from Crunchbase announcing a 58% collapse in Asia venture funding in the fourth quarter of last year have really stoked fears of a continuation of what many describe as an ongoing quote-unquote, funding winter for Indonesian and Southeast Asian startups through the rest of this year and even into 2024. There, however, continues to be steady innovation in the funding of promising startups, particularly in the fintech space. 21 Yield, for instance, is a recently founded next-generation debt fund based in France, but with a focus on Indonesia, other parts of developing Southeast Asia, and Latin America. The firm, founded by today's guest, Kami Krechi, seeks to leverage advances in big data to help grow more efficiently the lending facility of a fintech with a quick turnaround time and by offering more flexible terms and requirements. We hope to discuss with Camille today's new scalable lending models that have emerged, allowing debt fund models like 21 Yield to evolve and fit into this trend. Great to have you join us today, Camille. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Now, a simple question for you, Camille. How did a French guy end up passionate about fintech, moreover, in the emerging markets? To begin with, I was an ambitious guy with a math background in France that is quite intense. And then I did a gap year in Asia, and that's how I discovered financial services. That was quite a different world from basically what I may have been accustomed to before. Camille, you have been involved in startup and Asia in many ways, shapes, and forms. Can you tell us a little more about that? I guess I was interested in Asia before actually living here. I started my first startup in college. It was Japanese animations back in France. France is actually the largest market overseas for anime outside of Japan. They broadcasted animes from the 90s on the first channel, a 40% audience share for 10 years. And after, just before internet was broken up, they stopped broadcasting. So where do people go? They go on the internet with no legal offer for a long time. So millions of people were watching it online with no legal office and the publisher was just like us seeing it out. So that was basically the point you to offer something different. Well, on the topic of anime, for those of us who are basically uninitiated in the anime art, what is the most must-follow series in your mind and why? There's as many animes as there's books to some degree, but if she likes a bit of the sea and adventure and likes the archipelago type of thing that comes to her mind with Indonesia, Maybe One Piece, which is about uh, pirates and adventures going from one place to another. It's the Great Saga. I have a 14 and a half hour flight awaiting me back to Singapore, and I think I'll stock up on some titles. Now, as I mentioned, you started your career in fintech in emerging markets quite a while back, frankly, before it was even a thing. Can you tell us about your time specifically at Transfer2? Yeah, sure. It was before it was fintech and other things. And- if you think about how fintech is evolved right now, it's around two key elements. One is smartphones, and the second one is open banking. And so that was before that. And basically the first sort of tech services that was present in emerging markets was telco. So the first thing that was transacted around was prepaid at a time. So a recharge on your phone. That was the first thing that people started to exchange. So that was back in the 90s. 
some guys in the UK bought a charge for uh, their fans and loved ones in Jamaica. So that's how that new use case emerged. So that was a very simple use case. Like, I have $5, $10. I mm-hmm. want to send it to my loved one back in the country. And if I send the cash, it will cost me $5, $10 with Western Union. So that's not a good idea. So instead, the idea was, what can I send or directly pay for that would be at immediate transfer of value, cross-border, maybe the other side of the globe, immediately for a small amount. So that was the value proposition of buying a recharge for like airtime. And so that's what Trusted 2 was focused on so that you can be like in Malaysia and Saudi Arabia and all kind of different places in the US and buy direct prepaid airtime for your loved one back wherever you want, whether it's India, Indonesia, Philippines, Latin America, Africa, all over. So Trusted 2 was basically operating as a hub between emerging markets and on the other side, different developed country where people were sending money from. So that was basically the Trusted 2 model and they were selling it for different set of distribution channel. So that could be either different retail stores like 7-Eleven or whether you go to the telco directly. So basically that was sold as a value added service. They had a lot of business from the Gulf, for example, where like people were buying with cash, some additional value services to the telcos in, in Saudi Arabia and other countries. So that was fitted also for loved one back in the country. Might be a commute. That was mostly cash-based. So it's not like using a credit card to, to pay for services. So that's what's mostly how they were doing business. So mostly channel sales and a lot of B2B partnerships to get things going. A lot of the elements in background was linked to how modern fintech also works in a sense that mostly was built upon an API on both ends. For example, you want to buy instantly from the telco, so you got an API connections and you want to sell it on the other side. So that's pretty much how it works. Great. Now, I see that you also spent quite a bit of time in the Philippines, and I assume one of your passion projects prior to founding 21 Yield was the nearly seven years you spent building PhilSmile which you describe as a quote-unquote cloud-based ERP or enterprise resource planning platform for schools, leveraging a SaaS model, which is software as a service. Can you tell us about the highs and lows of working in the Philippines and this period of your career? Sure. Maybe I could start with how it all came about. So initially, I was coming from that angle of financial services for migrants. So the first question was, how can we send money cross-border? So initially we set up remittance services for tuition payments. That's what we started. Then the school from that many. So what they needed was a student database. So we built up an enrollment system to do this, both to get the students and the billing so that you can reconcile the payment if an invoice to pay. So that was one. And the second part was they wanted to charge the students for it. You need to build up a grading system, tenant certifications, bills to pay, and other services. So that was the part that we build up on, on all front. And lastly, since the grades need to be filled in, we need to have the, the teachers to have an access to have the pay so that we end up doing everything for our schools from the enrollments to the gradings, to the finance, to the HR. In terms of highs and lows, it was amazing going through all that period of building the complete product, developing a team of 37 getting 50 schools, clients from the corner schools to access some large universities, that like 20,000 students. That part was the high and the lows was different challenges in building in emerging market where you got bureaucracy, you got different lows and it's not always favorable and all kinds of different things in the way. And it was not that easy to raise funding as well. 
So that was different challenges down the road. And at the end, COVID was a killer for us since we were selling to schools and the, the billing was based on the students. There was no longer students because the schools were closed and they closed in the Philippines for two years. There was no longer a viable business. So we had to crush up. Got you. As you retell some of these stories, it seems as though at least a couple of your roles in the fintech space have engaged with some of the more vulnerable constituents, such as migrant workers and students. What injustices or difficulties did you find these types facing? And how did you propose addressing them with your solution? Actually, that was not the angle that we're coming at, but mostly the building of a sense of others, in a sense that you want to understand people and build it with empathy. What I mean by this is that it's radically different from the way that the Silicon Valley model works. You have to build up a product for you, meaning that like when you build it from that perspective, uh, it has to be centered around your problem that may be quite isolated from the rest of the world. So in that environment, you have to do it in a reverse fashion, in a sense that like you got to be focused on what other people are experiencing and how can you solve and understand that problem. So that was where we're getting at. We are very much business driven in the sense that the idea was to consider them as clients. You're offering a service, you consider them with dignity, how you can consider them in that way. So that was mostly the approach in that sense that we're not solely NGOs or like activists in that sense. Fully understood. So you decided to become an investor with 21 Yield. Why the transition from entrepreneur to investor? First, we're not really an investor in a sense that we don't really invest in equity in fintech or startups, but we are mostly providing debt or wholesale funding so that fintech can expand their credit portfolio. Our model was mostly based on my previous experience, also doing different sort of lending on the side. Both for the first mile, we were doing advice discounting for schools, so getting late payment for the uh, subsidies from the government. And also I did a bit of structured credit for ADB on a student loan program we wanted to do. So I experienced different ways of how fintech was doing and the cost of funding that they were experiencing with fierce uh, SME lending in, in the Philippines. So we saw the gap between the difficulty of accessing the funding from the fintech side and on the other side, the, the lack of appropriate investment opportunities in where interest rate was negative at that time. And it was uh, such a big discrepancy between the pool of available capital on one side and on the other side, the agreed opportunity to deploy that capital since there were so many people that was effectively lacking funding. Understood. I want to pick up on that, those elements of your business model shortly. But I first want to ask you, I believe you work with your brother, Mal. And I'm just curious, what is the division of labor between the two of you and how has that collaboration been so far? I know that working with family, it's not a model that a lot of people are using, but for us, it works quite well in the sense that we are very complementary in the sense that I have a background in finance and business. That's the part I'm taking care of and exposure also to Southeast Asia since I lived there for nine years. And so that's a lot of what I know into both the models and how things work. And on the other side, my brother is more of a tech background and did a bit of consulting also on, on that side. So we are quite complementary, building the platform together. Gotcha. Let's come back to 21 Yield, the platform that you and your brother have begun to build. What opportunity exactly are we talking about? So as I mentioned, the main point is for the fintech to expand the credit portfolio. If you are starting a fintech, usually you initially raise equity funding so that you'll use the equity to lend to different borrowers. 
but that could be challenging to raise and costly. At some point, you'll we'll be looking at trying to raise some debt so that you can expand your credit portfolio without having that same level of dilutions. So that's where we come in. We can contribute to the expansion of the credit portfolio for the fintech. So that's where mostly we come in. Okay. And so what do you see as the unique opportunity set in Indonesia itself? Indonesia is very interesting in the sense that it's a quite large market. It's a very large SME market and has a large population. And also a conducive regulatory framework regarding lending. So that that's the two big part because we're looking at fintech. So it needs to be a market that exists. If you're looking for a small country with no players, there's no market to do this. So that's the first part. And the second part is that you look for like a macroeconomic environment that is fairly stable. And what is interesting is that they coming from Europe, effectively for between you and like Indonesia, Europe, that would be fairly stable. The exchange rate has been like minus 3% for Euro in two years, but pretty much it's not really affected a lot. Meaning that if you want to land one way or another, and that you have a sharp drop in currency of 50%, like some countries in Africa or other places, that's very challenging because you won't be able to price it in a way that will be attractive. So it's important that like from the different countries that you're working with, the exchange rate is relatively stable and that the growth path is good so that the repayment ability of the borrowers down the road is also good because effectively if you invest amid of a crisis, of course, it's going to be more challenging. So you want to have like long-term growth path as well as a co-economic stability. Understood. Would love to delve into the kind of unique euro denominated opportunity we offer. But first I wanted to ask you, we have had a number of entrepreneurs on Indotechno that have taken on venture debt or lending from players in the region. How specifically are we different than the venture debt value proposition that has grown in Southeast Asia? So quite large topics. So the first thing is that when you talk about venture debt, it has its origin. That's what Silicon Valley Bank started quite a long time ago. And initially was that I, I raised my series A or later on, and I want to expand the runway. So I took a loan aside from the equity run that I did with my investor VCs. So those were like a few debts that was based on the, on the probability that you raise the next fundraising from your VCs. That was not like a cash flow model. That was based on the fundraising ability of the, of the startup. So that was quite different in the risk profile. So the, the interest rate relatively to the U.S. was high. And the founder usually have to have a strong guarantee. That means the home often to put in collateral. So that the term for it seen as quite unfavorable for the funders because the interest rate was high. And the risk was all on their side since if they fail, they would be also in, in personal bankruptcy. So that was basically what venture debt is historically. Then effectively different type of new models emerge where it was not like venture debt just for the growth of the startup, but just a debt to expand the credit portfolio for fintech that do lend to end borrowers, whether that's consumer loans or SMEs or the, the different type of models out there. So that started to be mostly from large debt funds. And that was coming all local banks sometimes, but that was coming from a fairly large chunk, five, 20 million, 60 million dollars sometimes for long tenure. That was something that came about, but that was more challenging for some funders to obtain because they will need to have some equity to have debt to equity ratios in there. 
So that was some of the constraints that exist in the market. So what we do offer is something that could address some debt funding at a lower level than the 5 million threshold so that we can go as low as 100,000 or 500,000 dollars with regular expansion of the credit line to a few millions there or more. So that's the model we, we approach. You can target earlier stage FinDEX, C to Series A to later stage. And the second part is to have also flexible terms, meaning that some FinTech may not have the runway that is two or three years or be profitable. So it's difficult to have a long tenure of that land if you do not have the capital to establish that you'll have a repayability by that time. So instead, what we structure ourselves to do is to have shorter tenure so that we can also lend to fintech that do not have that runway of two to three years so that it will be on a rolling basis that they will have more time to do the next round raising to establish their profitability and therefore be able to come up to the next Jordan levels with us. Understood. That's very clear. So we can basically support startups at earlier stages and we often offer more flexible terms around elements such as tenor. So what is your message these days to a new fintech startup in Indonesia that is seeking debt funding? What are the relative attractions of taking money from 21 yield relative to some of these other options in the market? There will be a few things. The flexible terms could be something that could be more scalable for them to expand the credit line quicker than some other avenues that they could find, which is important depending on the scale that they are targeting. The second element is that cost of capital in Europe tends to be lower. The rates that will offer will tend to be lower than what they could find domestically if they are eligible to it. So that's the two main ones. The size of debt they could raise is higher, the rates that will be likely lower. So those are like the main effectiveness of what we can offer. Again, really clear. Let's talk about how we actually engage with the hypothetical fintech startup borrower. Can you tell us how 21 Yield would structure terms with this Indonesia-based tech company? What is the general eligibility? What is the drawdown profile? What duration do you generally agree upon? Sure, a few things. One, one option is that we do extend a credit line in Euro. So that will be directly, for example, with the SPD in Singapore that the fintech would set up. So that will enable an easier way to handle the Euro credit line. And then they will use that for their own operations in Indonesia. So that's the sort of uh, straightforward way to structure that part. And the second element is the type of limits would be, as mentioned, we can go as low as 100 or 500,000 from the small ticket and then increase it every quarter. So that based on the quality of the credits and the volume in terms of the growth, and we can expand that on a quarterly basis. So that's the way we approach it. And the goal is to be able to have a few millions of pay credit line over time. But we can be flexible. The way we approach it is effectively for growth. So that it can start small, but with the vision that the think that will also expand and that we can build together for growth. So that's mostly our perspective. The second element is that if they're setting up the SPV is a bit complex for them, it's like it's also possible to, to set up a, a credit line in Rupiah in Indonesia. But the rate will be a bit higher, but it's also something that we could set up in a similar way. Understood. Now, Camille, you will be based largely in Europe, while most of your borrowers will be based in Indonesia and Latin American markets such as Mexico and Brazil. 
What do you see as the pros and cons of being headquartered in Europe? I think the main interest is that capital will have a lower cost in Europe because the interest rate is lower. The CBS are lower rates, so right now it's 2.5%. Indonesia is 5.75%, and the US is 4.75%. So that gives you an idea of what sort of the, the lower threshold of interest rate that could be out. And then you got the prime lender rate that will be higher than that, depending on the countries. That, that's what exists. So the most interesting part is that being in Europe will actually have a lot of excess liquidity with lower rate of return expected. So that's the main interest of being based in Europe, to have a capital pool that will be with that sort of characteristics. And then in terms of being not in the country that we uh, seek to serve directly, is that we do have different contacts and we'll have progressively more people on the ground as well. But we'll travel extensively to meet the different people that be interesting. Now, Camille, you've mentioned a couple times in our session that you intend to offer lending with a relatively short tenor of three to six months revolving. Can we dig a little deeper? Why have we architected our offering this way? It's very much linked to the question of the runway that the fintech has. If the fintech has raised like hundred millions of dollars, it's beautiful, it's great, and luckily they can do whatever. They don't have, they have the equity buffer to, to raise a lot of debt and have enough fund for operation for two to three years. But the reality is that for a lot of fintech, it may not be what they have or what they will have in the future since the funding environment may not be as positive as it used to be. So if the ability to have a short-term facility is that you do not need to justify runway that is as long, meaning that if you have nine-month runway, then we can structure a facility that will be three-month. And then after the three-month, we'll see if you manage to extend the runway by raising more funds by being more profitable, different ways, but that gives you more avenue to do it. Because otherwise, basically you're not eligible and you will not find a credit line that will be applicable for you. It could be structured in different ways. That is an agreement, a master agreement that will be longer than that. And then having a sort of a different terms that will be revisited every quarter. There's different ways that we could structure it. But our goal is really to be long-term with a number of that and expand our commitments every quarter. So that's really the way we intend to do it. But at the same time, it's to be conditioned of the constraint that some of the fintech are be working with in terms of the equity that they have and different other things. Got you. Now, Camille, you've mentioned also on a couple of occasions in this podcast, the importance of data to 21 yield successful operations. Data is clearly of paramount importance across the entirety of the fintech ecosystem. Are we actually doing anything novel on the data side at 21 Yield? Yeah, first you need to take note of how some of the debt credit lines are managed. It's often a lot of paper-based long-term contract with different clauses that is hard to monitor and hard to manage in both and on the borrower and from the lender perspective with a lot of inefficiencies in terms of understanding what is the performance of the operations, if there's any guarantee, how is the guarantee changing? and all of that. So there's a lot of inefficiency down the line that is just about automating contract to begin with. So there's actually a couple of startups that like at lunch into effectively solving this. One in US called uh, Finley that is doing that in terms of the relationship between the lender and borrower. And another one in Colombia called VAS. And so that's one part to begin with in terms of uh, simplifying the capital calls and the, the expansion of the credit line that I was mentioning. So that's that part in terms of making some form of complex agreements, simpler and more operational in a way that structure. 
not something that is just legal terms, but something that could be touched later into an increased commitments and cash that could be like deployed quickly. So those are like more on their mechanics. And then there's the way we position ourselves to make it that successful is to also ask for their fintech to place the credit portfolio as well in guarantee of the credit line that we, that we expand to them. So that makes sure that the use of proceed of the loan is to expand the credit portfolio, not for operation. And the second element is that it enables us to monitor directly the quality of the loans done. So we do not expect the underlying portfolio to have zero default. We do expect that there will be default that may happen and to see the whole sort of credit life cycles that there may be a few defaults, uh, recovery uh, and all the cycles so that we can track data, see where it goes and make sure that the different risk parameters are properly set. And based on that, to be able to also expand our commitments for the time. We do have partners also for the underwriting if the fintech also need to boost that so that they can scale to new levels, different acquisition channels and different ways that they could grow. But at the same time, maintain a manageable default rate or reduce the default rate. So Camille, what scale do you hope to achieve by the end of 2024 next year? We're looking at deploying 100 to 150 million for 2024. We see a lot of demand from many different markets and depending on how we manage to scale things up, it could even go higher since there's a lot of different markets and a lot of different sort of fintechs that have a lot of opportunities to grow. Camille, thanks so much for sharing with us some of the new innovations and funding for Indonesia's fintechs. It's a nice alternative to the pretty grim news flow that is emerging from the startup space in Southeast Asia. I was just looking at Tech in Asia fundraising tracker for Southeast Asia, which fell 81% month on month between December and last month alone. But really, it's great to hear that there are new models that Indonesia's fintech startups can consider that offer greater flexibility and more timely access to capital, particularly in today's much more challenging fundraising environment. By the way, how would an entrepreneur connect with you? I can be reached easily on LinkedIn, for example, and that could be an easy way to connect. Yes, it's theoretically easy until we think about the spelling of your last name, which maybe you can share with the audience. Yeah, it's K-R-E-J-C-I. Not a lot of letters, Got but it. it's challenging. I want to copy name as 21 Yield, and my first name is Camille. Fantastic. Thanks again for joining us, Camille. We hope our listeners have enjoyed today's episode. As always, please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the End of Techno podcast with us. Terima kasih. Sampai jumpa lagi. Thank you.